Before the Dawn, A Story of the Fall of Richmond by Joseph A. Altscheller Published by Doubleday, Page, and Company April 1903 Produced by Civil War Audio at civilwar.builtwithflash.com Read by John Bruzes You can find us on Facebook at Civil War Audio Podcast Chapter 23, Out of the Forest The retreating brigade, the river behind it, and the pursuit seemingly lost on the farther shore, passed on in the golden sunshine of the morning through a country of gentle hills, green fields, and scattered forest. It was joined three hours after sunrise by no less a person than Mr. Sefton himself, fresh, immaculate, and with no trace of discomposure on his face. He was on horseback, and told them he had just come across the fields from another division of the army, not more than three miles away. He gave the news in a quiet tone, without any special emphasis upon the more important passages. The South had been compelled to give ground. Grant had lost more than 50,000 men, but he was coming through the wilderness and would not be denied. He was still fighting as if he had just begun, and reinforcements were constantly pouring forward to take the places of the fallen in his ranks. Prompted by a motive which even his own analytical mind could not define, the secretary sought Lucia Catherwood. He admired her height, her strength, and resolved beauty, knew that she was of a type as admirable as it was rare, and wondered once or twice why he did not love her instead of Helen Harley. Here was a woman with a mind akin to his own, bold, keen, and penetrating, and that face and figure. He wished he could see her in a drawing-room, dressed as she should be, and with the lights burning softly overhead. Then she would indeed be a princess, if there were any such beings, in the true meaning of the word, on this earth. She would be a fit wife for a great man, the greater half of himself." But he did not love her. He loved Helen Harley. The secretary confessed it to himself with a smothered half-sigh. At times he was pleased with this sole and recently discovered weak spot in his nature, because it brought to him some fresh and pleasing emotions, not at all akin to any that he had ever felt before. But again it troubled him, as a flaw in his armor. His love for Helen Harley might interfere with his progress, in fact, was doing so already, but he said to himself he could not help it. Now he was moved to talk to Lucia Catherwood. Dismounting from his horse, he took a place by her side. She was walking near the rear of the column, and there were others not many feet away, but she was alone in the truest sense, having a feeling of personal detachment and aloofness. These people were kind to her, and yet there was a slight difference in their manner toward her and toward one another, a difference almost imperceptible and perhaps not intended, but sufficient to show her that she was not of them. Just now it gave her such a sense of loneliness and exclusion that she almost welcomed the smile of the secretary when he spoke to her. As ready to recognize the power in him as he was to note her own strong and keen mind, she waited guardedly to hear what he had to say. "'Miss Catherwood,' he said, "'I was glad to assist you in your plan of returning to Richmond. 
but I have wondered why you should wish to return. If I may use a simile, Richmond is the heart of the storm, and having escaped from such a place, it seems strange that you should go back to it. There are many other women in Richmond, she replied, and as they will not be in any greater danger than I, should I be less brave than they? But they have no other choice. Perhaps I have none either. Moreover, a time is coming when it is not physical courage alone that will be needed. Look back, Mr. Sefton. She pointed to the wilderness behind them, where they saw the crimson glow of flames against the blue sky and long trailing clouds of black smoke. The low mutter of guns, a continuous sound since sunrise, still came to their ears. The flames and the smoke, she said, are nearer to Richmond than they were yesterday, just as they were nearer yesterday than they were the day before. It is yet a long road to Richmond, but it is being shortened. I shall be there at the end. The nearest and dearest of all my relatives is in Richmond, and I wish to be with her. There are other reasons, too, but the end of which I spoke is surely coming, and you know it as well as I. Perhaps you have long known it. As for myself, I have never doubted, despite great defeats. It is not given to men to have the faith of women. Perhaps not, but in this case it does not require faith. Reason alone is sufficient. What chance did the South ever have? The North, after all these years, is just beginning to be aroused. Until the present, you have been fighting only her vanguard. Sometimes it seems to me that men argue only from passion and sentiment, not from reason. If reason alone had been applied, this war would never have begun. Nor any other. It is a true saying that neither men nor women are ever guided wholly for any long period by reason. That is where philosophers, ideologists, Napoleon called them, make their mistake. And it is why the science of government is so uncertain. In fact, it is not a question of science at all, but of tact. The secretary was silent for a while, but he still walked beside Miss Catherwood, leading his horse by the bridle. Prescott, presently glancing back, beheld the two together and set his teeth. He did not like to see Lucia with that man, and he wondered what had put them side by side. He knew that she had a pass from Mr. Sefton, and this fresh fact added to his uneasiness. Was it possible those two had a secret in common? The secretary saw the frown on Prescott's face and was pleased, though he spoke of him and his great services. He has more than courage. He has sense allied with it. Sometimes I think that courage is one of the commonest of qualities, but it is not often that it is supported by coolness, discrimination, and the ability to endure. A fine young man, Robert Prescott, and one destined to high honors. If he survives the war, I should say that he will become the governor of his state or rise high in Congress. He watched the girl closely out of the corner of his eye as he spoke, for he was forming various plans and, as Lucia Catherwood was included in his comprehensive schemes, he wished to see the effect upon her of what he said. But she betrayed nothing. So far as her expression was concerned, Prescott might have been no more to her than any other chance acquaintance. 
She walked on, the free, easy stride of her long limbs carrying her over the ground swiftly. Every movement showed physical and mental strength. Under the tight sleeve of her dress, the muscle rippled slightly, but the arm was nonetheless rounded and feminine. Her chin, though the skin upon it was white and smooth like silk, was set firmly and marked an indomitable will. Curious thoughts again flowed through the frank mind of the secretary. Much of his success in life was due to his ability to recognize facts when he saw them. If he made failures, he never sought to persuade himself that they were successes or even partial successes. Thus, he always went upon the battlefield with exact knowledge of his resources. He wondered again why he did not fall in love with Lucia Catherwood. Here was the exact complement of himself, a woman with a mind, a fit mate to his own. He had come far already, but with her to aid him, there were no heights to which he, no, they, might not climb. And she was beautiful, beautiful with a grace, a stateliness, and dignity beyond compare. Mr. Sefton glanced down the column, and saw there a head upon which the brown hair curled slightly. The eyes were turned away, but the secretary knew they were blue, and that there was something in the face which appeals to strong men for protection. He shook his head slowly. The tricky little god was making sport of him, James Sefton, the invincible, and he did not like it. A sense of irritation against Lucia Catherwood rose in Mr. Sefton's mind. As he could not stir her in any obvious manner by speaking of Prescott, he felt a desire to move her in some way, to show his power over her, to compel from her an appeal for mercy. It would be a triumph to bring a woman at once so strong and so proud to her knees. He would not proceed to extreme measures, and would halt at the delicate moment, but she must be made to feel that he was master of the situation." So he spoke again of her return to Richmond, suggesting plans for her pleasant stay while there, mentioning acquaintances of his, whom he would like her to know, and making suggestions to which he thought she would be compelled to return answers that would betray more or less her position in Richmond. She listened at first with a flush on her face, giving way soon to paleness as her jaw hardened and her lips closed firmly. The perception of Lucia Catherwood was not inferior to that of the secretary, and she took her resolve. Mr. Sefton, she said at length, I am firmly convinced of one thing. And what is that? That you know I am the alleged spy for whom you were so long looking in Richmond. The secretary hesitated for an answer. Her sudden frankness surprised him. It was so different from his own methods in dealing with others that he had not taken it into account. "'Yes, you know it,' she continued, "'and it may be used against me, "'not to inflict on me a punishment, "'that I do not dread, "'but to injure the character and reputation "'that a woman loves, "'things that are to her the breath of life. "'But I say that if you choose to use your power, "'you can do so.' "'The secretary glanced at her in admiration, "'the old wonder concerning himself returning to him.' "'Miss Catherwood,' he said, "'I cannot speak in too high praise of your courage. "'I have never before seen a woman show so much. "'Your surmise is correct. "'You were the spy, or alleged spy, as you prefer to say, "'for whom I was looking. "'As for the morality of your act, 
I do not consider that. It never entered into my calculations. But in going back to Richmond, you realize that you will be wholly in the power of the Confederate government. Whenever it wants you, you will have to come, and in very truth, you will have to walk in the straight and narrow path. I am not afraid, she said, with a proud lifting of her head. I will take the risks, and if you, Mr. Sefton, for some reason unknown to me, force me to match my wits with yours, I shall do the best I can. The haughty uplift of her neck and the flash of her eyes showed that she thought her best would be no mean effort, but this attitude appealed to the secretary more than a humble submission ever would have done. Here was one with whom it would be a pleasure to make a test of skill and force. Certainly steel would be striking sparks from steel. I am not making any threats, Miss Catherwood, he said. That would be unworthy. I merely wish you to understand the situation. I am a frank man, I trust, and, like most other men, I seek my own advancement. It would further no interest of mine for me to denounce you at present, and I trust that you will not at any time make it otherwise. That is, I am to serve you if you call upon me. Let us not put it so bluntly. I shall not do anything that I do not wish to do, she said, and with the old proud uplift of her head. And listen, there is something which may soon shatter all your plans, Mr. Sefton. She pointed backward, where the purplish clouds hung over the wilderness, whence came the low, sullen mutter, almost as faint as the distant beat of waves on a coast. The secretary smiled deprecatingly. After all, you are like other women, Miss Catherwood. You suppose, of course, that I stake my whole fortune upon a single issue. But it is not so. I wish to live on after the war, whatever its result may be, and the tide of fortune in that forest may shift and change, but mine may not shift and change with it. You are at least frank. The South may lose, but if she loses, the world will not end on that account. I shall still wish to play my part. Ah! Here comes Captain Prescott. Prescott liked little this long talk between Lucia and the secretary, and the deep interest each seemed to show in what the other said. He bore it with patience for a time, but it seemed to him, though the thought was not so framed in his mind, that he had a certain proprietary interest in her, because he had saved her at great risk. The secretary received him with a pleasant smile, made some slight remark about duty elsewhere, and dropped easily away. Prescott waited until he was out of hearing before he said, Do you like that man, Miss Catherwood? I do not know. Why? You were in such close and long conversation that you seemed to be old friends. There were reasons for what we said. She looked at him so frankly that he was ashamed, but she, recognizing his tone and the sharpness of it, was not displeased. On the contrary, she felt a warm glow, and the woman in her urged her to go further. She spoke well of the secretary, his penetrating foresight, and his knowledge of the world and its people, men, women, and children. Prescott listened in a somewhat sulky mood, and she, regarding him with covert glances, was roused to a singular lightness that she had not known for many days. Then she changed, showing him her softer side, for she could be as feminine as any other woman, not less so than Helen Harley, 
and she would prove it to him. Becoming all sunshine, with just enough shadow to deepen the colors, she spoke of a time when the war should have passed, when the glory of this world with the green of spring and the pink of summer should return. Her moods were so many and so variable, but all so gay, that Prescott began to share her spirits, and although they were retreating from a lost field, and the cannon still muttered behind them, he forgot the war, and remembered only this girl beside him, who walked with such easy grace, and saw so bright an outlook. Thus the retreat continued. The able-bodied soldiers of the brigade were drafted away, but the women and wounded men went on. Grant never ceased his hammer strokes, and it was necessary for the southern leaders to get rid of all superfluous baggage. Prescott, singularly enough, found himself in command of this little column that marched southward, taking the place of his friend Talbot, lost in a mysterious way to the regret of all. Mr. Sefton left them the day after his talk with Lucia, and Prescott was not sorry to see him go, for some of his uneasiness departed with him. Harley, vain, fretful, and complaining, gave much trouble, yielding only to the influence of Mrs. Markham, with whom Prescott did not like to see him, but was helpless in the matter. Helen and Lucia were the most obedient of soldiers and gave no trouble at all. Helen, a warm partisan, seemed to think little of the great campaign that was going on behind her, and to concern herself more about something else. Yet she was not unhappy. Even Prescott could see it, and the bond between her and Lucia was growing strong daily. Usually they were together, and once when Mrs. Markham spoke slightingly of the northern woman, as she called Lucia, Helen replied with a sharpness very remarkable for her, a sharpness that contributed to the growing coldness between them, which had begun with the power Mrs. Markham exercised over Helen's brother. Prescott noticed these things more or less, and sometimes they pained him, but clearly they were outside of his province, and in order to give them no room in his mind, he applied himself more diligently than ever to his duties, his wound now permitting him to do almost a man's work. They marched slowly, and it gave promise of being a long journey. The days grew very hot. The sun burned the grass, and over them hung clouds of steamy vapor. For the sake of the badly wounded, who had fever, they traveled often by night and rested by day in the shade. But that cloud of war never left them. The days passed, and distant battles still hung on their skirts. The mutter of the guns was seldom absent. And they saw, yet, now and then on the horizon, flashes like heat lightning. One morning there was a rapid beat of hoofs, a glitter of sabers issuing from a wood, and in a moment the little convoy was surrounded by a troop of cavalry in blue. "'Only wounded men and women,' said their leader, a young colonel with a fine open face. "'Bah! We have no time to waste with them.' He bowed contritely, touching his hat to the ladies, and saying that he did not mean to be ungallant. Then, in a moment, he and his men were gone at a gallop in a cloud of dust, disappearing in a whirlwind across the plain, leaving the little convoy to proceed at its leisure. Prescott gazed after them, shading his eyes with his hands. There must be some great movement at hand, he said, or they would have asked us questions, at least. The day grew close and sultry. 
Columns of steamy vapor moved back and forth and enclosed them, and the sun set in a red mist. At night it rained, but early the next morning the mutter of the cannon grew to a rumble and then a storm. The hot day came, and all the east was filled with flashes of fire. The crash of cannon was incessant, and in fancy every one in that little convoy heard the tramping of brigades and the clatter of hoofs as the horsemen rushed on the guns. "'They have met again,' said Lucia. "'Yes,' replied Prescott. "'It's Grant and Lee. How many great battles is this since they first met in the wilderness?' Nobody could tell. They had lost count." The tumult lasted about an hour, and then died away, to be succeeded by a stillness intense and painful. The sun shone with a white glare. No wind stirred. The leaves and the grass drooped. The fields were deserted. There was not a sign of life in them, either human or animal. The road lay before them, a dusty streak. None came to tell of the battle, and oppressed by anxiety, Prescott moved on. Some horsemen appeared on the hills the next morning, and as they approached, Prescott, with undescribable joy, recognized in the lead the figure of Talbot, whose unknown fate they had mourned. Talbot delightedly shook hands with them all, not neglecting Lucia Catherwood. His honest face glowed with emotion. "'I am on a scout around our army now,' he said, "'and I thought I should find you near here somewhere. I wanted to tell you what had become of me.' I was captured that night we were crossing the river, some of my blundering, but I escaped the next night. It was easy enough to do it. There was so much fighting and so much of everything going on that I just rose up and walked out of the Yankee camp. Nobody had time to pay any attention to me. I got back to Lee. Somehow I knew I must do it, as he could never win the war without me, and here I am. There was a battle yesterday morning. We heard it, said Prescott. Talbot's face clouded, and the corners of his mouth drooped. "'We have won a great victory,' he said, "'but it doesn't pay us. "'The Yankees lost twelve or fifteen thousand men, "'but we haven't gained anything. "'That firing you heard was at Cold Harbor. "'It was a great battle, an awful one. "'I hope to God I shall never see its like again. "'I saw fifteen thousand men stretched out "'on the bloody ground in rows.' I don't believe that so many men ever before fell in so short a time. I have heard of a whirlwind of death, but I never saw one till then. We had gone into entrenchments, and Grant moved against us with his whole army. They came on. You could hear them, the tramp of regiments and brigades, scores of thousands, and the sun rising up and turning to gold over their heads. Our cannon began. What a crash! It was like twenty thunderbolts all at once. We swept that field with tons and tons of metal. Then our rifles opened, and the whistling of the bullets was like the screaming of a wind on a plane. You could see the men of that army shoot up into the air before such a sheet of metal, and you heard the cracking of bones, like the breaking up of ice. After a while, those that lived had to turn back. Human beings could not stand more and we were glad when it was all over. Talbot stayed a little while with them. Then he and his men, like the northern cavalry, whirled off in a cloud of dust, and the little convoy resumed its solemn march southward, reaching Richmond in safety. <laughs>